0: Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about topics related to running role playing games. My name is Andy Rao, and today I am joined by Matt. Hi, everyone. I am filling in for Chris Salzman. Indeed. Matt, you have been on the show a couple of times in the past, but not for a little while. And Chris, unfortunately, is um, under the weather, we'll say. And although. He is uh, making a recovery and you need not worry about him. He was not able to uh, make this uh, recording session. So for our first episode of the new year, it will be me and Matt uh, chatting here. I will say I appreciate that uh, in Matt, I I have a fellow uh, lover of history, a history nerd. And so Matt, I got to toss out a couple of questions to a couple of history related questions just to ground our conversation here. Sounds great. Here's the question I've been waiting to ask you, Matt. In college and grad school, uh. Uh, particularly grad school, interacting with different faculty and uh, and professors and researchers. I found that almost every historian I knew had a topic or an event or a time period that they considered to be the most important pivotal moment in the his- in human history. And I'm wondering if you have a pet topic that, <laughs> that uh, you feel is is not sufficiently recognized, as being the pivotal event that it is wow that is uh
1: that is a very open-ended question i like it um yeah. the caveat that it has to not be universe or not super recognized for what yes. it is is, yeah. is an interesting one yeah what's what's yours give me give me an example of uh of where of where you're thinking
0: yeah so i've voiced this in the past so apologies to uh, okay. to obsessive listeners who may recall this but I personally feel that the death of Julian the Apostate is a turning point that is insufficiently appreciated. Uh, I don't. I think it's one of my favorite what ifs in all of history. That I, yeah. that is a, that is a great one, Andy, for the simple
1: reason that he was an effective emperor who was rolling back yes. uh, the christianization of the roman world in a very meaningful uh way at a yeah. time where the old world could have still come back that's exactly. that is a tremendous
0: example yeah what if he had what if it had just his story had played out differently who knows yeah but, uh, it'd be a very different world this might seem like overly
1: similar but the th- Fun fact here is that Andy and I have very similar interests in the sort of uh, late classical, early medieval world. But uh, for me, I think it is the twin environmental shocks
0: of Justinian's later reign. Uh, oh, OK. Um, Can you give us the a, a quick rundown? Of yeah.
1: That? So I think if people have heard about one of these uh uh, titanic shocks it is the first appearance of the black plague yersinia pestis okay in the mediterranean world which reared its ugly head sort of justinian had embarked on this many historians now feel overly ambitious project to recreate the roman empire from its byzantine uh uh descent and was astonishingly successful at that until he was derailed. One of the events was this massive outbreak of bubonic plague that killed millions (laughs) across the Mediterranean world and took the knees right out of his sort of Byzantine resurgence. The other thing that happened during that era, and probably why the bubonic plague spread so profusely the way it did is that that was a there were there were two consecutive years of massive crop failures um all across the the near east and and mediterranean world and in in some places they were referred to as years without sun Hmm. there was some huge uh climatic event that took place and uh, i think the current thinking is that it was uh, a volcano somewhere um that that erupted and just wiped out the agricultural economic base um and then boom right as you start coming out of that you get the plague so it's sort of like these twin shocks uh hit right as his program of reconquest was at its most expensive and most stretched and he could least afford to have anything go wrong so I think uh, I think a world that centralized under uh, Roman rule for even even a few hundred years uh, is a much different world
0: wow that's fascinating it makes me think about the histories of these D d and similar world these fan histories of these fantasy worlds are often filled with cataclysms and stuff but yeah I think there's something about the, I, I mundane is the wrong word, but the mundanity of like a plague, or a, an unfortunate death or something like that, having this huge effect on the develop the future of the world. I think there's something interesting about that that is, that is lost. I guess when you have these fantasy worlds with histories with giant meteors. Right. devastating continents and the gods dying off or something like that right
1: yeah in fantasy settings the catastrophes are personified in some way right yeah. um they're given form so that they can be overcome by a doti band of adventurers or <laughs> the one true right. hero who who learns how to step up and you know, it's there's sort of this thing in like a lot of modern fantasy, right? Like a lot of people talked about the end of Game of Thrones, like, oh, it's a climate change metaphor, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. because that's the the catastrophe we that is present in our minds. So, of course, our fiction is going to include some sort of looming scenario like that. So, yeah, I think fantasy for a long time, what are you going to do with a plague or Two years without sun, uh, it's a famine. What else could cause those things that people
0: could actually do something about? From a world building perspective, too, I wonder if it would be an interesting exercise to ask that what if question as you come up with the history of your own world, just to um, imagine different ways your world might uh, evolve. Yeah, I, th- I think that might lead to some maybe slightly more grounded fantasy worlds. But anyway, this, as I say, this uh, this podcast is at least nominally about role-playing games and not history. <laughs> uh, I will. Uh, and the biggest event that has just happened is, of course, uh, that we, this is the first episode airing in the new year of our Lord, 2023. So traditionally around this time, Chris and I would be talking, reflecting about the last year's worth of game, master- game mastering experience maybe try to tease out a couple of uh, insights or lessons we've learned and then talk about what we want to do in the new year. Let me just uh, lob a general question out to you, Matt. What was the most uh, memorable GMing experience you had in the last year?
1: Ah, memorable GMing experiences. Uh, that's 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 quite a, a good question. This past year, I've been doing sort of what I referred to as a year of experiment a year of experimentation trying games that i haven't uh, tried before trying systems that do things that i have been interested in for a little while but not necessarily gotten my toes dipped into yet so yeah i've been i've been running a lot of little things but i think the biggest revelation of the year is the biggest revelation of the year for me is the Carved from Brindlewood uh Brindlewood
0: Bay mystery system. Yeah, I had the good fortune of playing in a Brindlewood Bay game run by you. Um so
1: Yeah, yeah, I've been running this game for for basically anyone who shows <laughs> any interest at all. I I <laughs> leap forward and and say, "I will run a Brindlewood Bay game for you because it do, it is it has done two things for me. One is that I am very much a mystery slash investigative slash horror centric gm all of my games in some way involves those elements to some degree and the other thing that it does is it's the first powered by the apocalypse game that i got from Mm. reading it and i was like okay i i see now what Powered by the Apocalypse is attempting to accomplish, and I, I feel like I can do it now. I own Apocalypse World, I own Dungeon World, I own several other Apocalypse World games, but when I've read them, they have never struck me as something that, like, I, I just, I don't know why, but they just never clicked with me. Hmm. I've stolen things from each of them to put into my other games, don't get me wrong, but uh, this is the first one I was like, okay, this, as written, I can run this. This makes a lot of sense to me. I see what it's trying to do, and
0: I see why it's doing it in this way. If it's not too irritating to ask, could you say what that was <laughs> that you had been missing before? Yeah, I was talking to friend of this podcast, Kyle Latino uh, and John
1: Corey, a little bit about this, trying to articulate this. I'm not entirely sure yet. It might come down to the fact that, as I said, I, I'm... All of my games are in some way investigative. And uh, if you don't know Brindlewood Bay, it's sort of like Murder, She Wrote that turns into this little cozy Cthulhu game. Um, So there's lots of investigation. It's got some procedural murder mystery stuff. And then there's this conspiracy that's revealed in the shadows around it. And it's all very, it's very much pitched as a TV show. And I think the fact that I understood the genre that it was trying to emulate and the the material around it that the author Jason Cordova has put together for some reason articulated more clearly to me what a game should feel like and should look like, which allowed the mechanics that are present to really click with that. For whatever reason, the other Apocalypse, or Powered by the Apocalypse games that I have read, just they they haven't been able to articulate to me in a way that i understood what this what feelings this is trying to evoke what what even if i understood the genre like i I have a powered by the apocalypse cyberpunk game i also love cyberpunk as a setting but i didn't understand how the mechanics meshed with what i think of as cyberpunk whereas when i read brindlewood bay i i immediately saw how the mechanics
0: of the apocalypse engine would produce the desired genre effect at the table i am in a little bit of the same boat as you were in that i own a number of games i've played a number of games uh, with some sort of design connection to apocalypse world and yeah i if it's not cliche to say it it hasn't it has yet to click for me in a fully satisfying way. Although I have yeah. I have had fun with those games, but I'll have to give some thought to that. Reflecting back on my experience playing in the Brindlewood pay game, which was it was a truly lovely experience. I really enjoyed it. Uh, both you know the game itself was fantastic you did a great job of gming it so i have to give some sometimes you know a, a particularly confident incarnation of the you know incarnation of the rules is just what it takes to show you okay this is what they're going for the whole time yeah
1: yeah and i think it's it might be down to to a simple matter of presentation yeah around it or it might be down to me just having a a level of comfortability and familiarity with it so like I said, I, I've, I've tried the, the cyberpunk ones, and you, I would think, given my background, that I would be comfortable with those as well, but I, I just, I'm just, i just not quite. I don't
0: know. <laughs> I was going to say, there are two things that stand out to me from the last year that were memorable GMing experiences. One of them, I think it was early in 2022. It's possible it was late. Now, I'm pretty sure it was early this last <laughs> year, but nice. it was running a one-shot for a bunch of high schoolers. So eight eight high schoolers i was running a savage worlds uh so savage worlds game. yeah and the what i drew from that experience uh i i probably invested more for that one three or so hour game i probably invested more emotional energy and prep time than i would invest in you know a full campaign for running wow. Run-ups or whatever. And it was just so out, outside my comfort zone. It, there's a lot of players. I didn't know any of them in advance. You know, I hadn't run games for kids that age in a long time. And the last time I did, I made one of them cry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and it was also being run, you know, kind of under the supervision of the educators at the school who were you know, they're nominally to nominally to keep the game going, but also probably to keep an eye on like the the weirdo parent. You know, buddy, right, right. What do you know, what do you, what are you teaching our children, Andy? Right, exactly. It was a lot of fun. It you know, it did not go perfectly, and sure. I just emerged from it though, feeling as if I had just had some of my skills just kind of stretched and challenged in a way that I normally associate with like non-gaming activities, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) like I, I had, I felt like I had to work for it and that I walked away with it with a, a good new experience under my belt. So that was enjoyable. And then the second one I wanted to mention, it just happened a couple of days ago. So it's maybe, that's maybe why it figures so large in my mind right now. But over Christmas break, my wife ran a game of Regent of Call of Cthulhu set in the Regency period in England uh, using the new source book of Regency Cth- Reg- Regency Cthulhu by published by Chaosium. And what was interesting about that, so I was playing in that game with my teenager and my wife was GMing for the first time in many years and she didn't know the rules like at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, and here here's a little gaming heresy i have the call of cthulhu system for decades is it's always trotted out as a system that is allegedly simple and intuitive but i defy anyone to read the combat chapter and tell me that is more intuitive and simpler than like a crunchy than pathfinder frankly like i didn't even try to teach you know to quote teach her the rules in advance and i didn't i didn't even give her the call of cthulhu rule book um, mm-hmm. you know it's like well, if i hand my wife this 450 page tome i mean it <laughs> it's going to kill her desire to run this yes uh, so instead just when a rule thing happened by my wife, my wife would just say how do we how do we do this how do we resolve this and, yeah. uh and i would whip it up at the table but i generally simplifying it a little bit because i didn't want to be in a situation where i had to teach people like a complicated system in the middle right. of a game we just wanted to generally we just needed to be able to resolve something uh right and move Coming on down. and i was gonna say yeah yeah really leaning into or 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 forcing yourself to rely on the whole like rulings not rules yeah it meshed with some realizations I've had over the last couple of years running uh, running games like the Alien Role Playing Game and Band of Blades that talk a lot about bringing the mechanics in when it will really add something to the experience to bring the mechanics in. Yeah, and it yeah on the players end of that it was just a lot more evident to me where where the beats were in the story where it was like yes. It's time to bring in the element of chance to see yeah. how this plays out. I've never been like a rules light snob or whatever, a snob about it. You know, I enjoy crunchy, hefty systems, so, but I know that going into the new year and the games I run, it's going to, I can have a slightly different idea about how to approach that when you bring it, when you pull out the dice and when you don't. So
1: that's, that sounds amazing. I have two quick reactions to that. One is I think that the, the basic role playing, Uh, brp rules which underlies call of cthulhu or is extracted from call of cthulhu are quite simple in concept because it's just percentile dice yeah and then you get into pages and pages of modifiers (laughs) and it's like okay we're wargaming now boys uh (laughs) and boys and girls yeah and the other thought is I for years and years have maintained that the best sessions uh they just happen to be uh Cthulhu adjacent to gaming because that's what I lean into cosmic horror reality horror stuff the best sessions that we've had are the ones where dice are not important uh, yeah. more than once or twice yeah and as you say then it's a matter of finding when you need when the story needs the tension of an uncertain outcome yeah so yeah. yeah I, I certainly think that you can go you can get quite far in role playing without uh without dice, uh if you're focusing on on telling a story rather than clearing a dungeon, I guess. If you're gonna it's... do clearing a dungeon as role-playing, absolutely no judgment from me. You need dice. You're gonna there's gonna be a lot of situations where you need, need mechanics and you need dice
0: stuff. So okay. So having reflected on the last year, I guess the natural question is. What are your plans for this year when it comes to GMing? Why don't we start with a topic that's been circling around the game community a lot the last couple of weeks? And there is this kind of challenge or, or resolution or whatever you want to call it going around called uh, Dungeon 23, I think, mm-hmm. where an awful lot of people that I follow on social media are drawing a like a dungeon room a day or some variant on that. You are not like a D&D GM uh, or primarily like, Is that a thing that appeals to you? Is there something in there that you have chosen to adapt to like your own GMing goals? Gotcha. Absolutely. I, I I really
1: love the idea and I think that it is awesome that so many people are going to just spend a little time every day engaging in something that hopefully will be cathartic and, and call, you know, uh, cozy and uh, creative and get them thinking about interesting things that might happen in a dungeon because i i think after a couple of weeks of designing rooms you're all you're almost guaranteed to have run out of of uh generic things that might yeah, happen yes. in a dungeon <laughs> yeah.
0: so i think
1: i think that sort of a challenge is 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 great
0: i want to see everybody's daily dungeon rooms in like eight weeks right we'll have we'll as you say we'll have gone through all of the stuff that springs to mind quickly <laughs> and it yeah. will it will, uh, it will be getting real weird or real bad or something but yeah. either way it'll be more interesting yeah in a couple months.
1: my my hope and wish for people is that is that a couple of months from now they're they're off in some sort of david lynchian <laughs> 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 yes. a realm Uh, building the strangest dungeons that anyone has ever seen. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that there's a finite quantity of time that people will actually spend on this. I'll be very impressed by anyone who who makes it uh, the entire year, for sure. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, That's awesome. But um, I, at least, am spending my little bit of gaming time every day, my little bit of cozy, creative gaming time every day, gradually uh, prepping for my next bigger campaign cycle that I want to run. And this okay. sort of, the year of experimentation was around trying to explore different mechanics, different rule systems, different styles of, of playing games, because I knew that I wanted to run this this campaign eventually, and I wanted to explore what mechanics I might want to use for that. So I, I think I've settled on on stuff now. So I am basically using Dungeon 23 as an opportunity to... It's like prep 23, if you will.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Keep myself responsible yeah. for that. And it's
1: actually... I think you yourself are running at least a version of the old Warhammer fantasy roleplay classic, The Enemy Within. Is that—is yes. that correct? Is that still an ongoing concern?
0: It is still an ongoing concern, but I am probably shifting that to something else this year. Okay. Uh, just... Just hasn't uh, hasn't been taking root. I don't think. Um, gotcha. It's a game played with my family members. There was a lot of excitement about when my wife ran that Cthulhu game. It really clicked. So mm-hmm. that feels like the right place to uh, to move my family game. Uh, you nice. know, I, when you get a teenager's attention, you don't want to squander it. I guess. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, it's a good. That's
1: a good reminder that that ultimately it's about. Uh, Having a good time at the table with your friends, yeah, absolutely, your family as well. So, gotta read read the room there. Well, yeah, the game that I am prepping is is also a take on the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay classic.
0: uh, Hey, awesome! Are you planning to run it mostly straight, or is this? Are you taking it as a launching point for your own Mm, stuff?
1: I would say i i would I would smile mischievously, and say that I'm planning on playing it about as straight as I played Master of at Eternal Eyes. Which is to true. say, it will be I hope
0: recognizable as, as that yeah. the core story spine. Um, well, I know from my own uh, reading up on this over the last few months, there's some really good uh, accounts and resources for running Enemy within out mm. there. There's one or two bloggers in particular that are just very prolific on their experience running it and their, you know, critiques and suggestions for uh, working at working with it. So
1: I have a bunch of stuff printed out from them over on that. Oh, do you? Okay. One one or two of them printed out over on the table over there. So
0: those of you who know Matt know that Chris and I have been uh, prodding him for a while. It's one of our long, longer term goals to get Matt to uh, start up some sort of blog about history (laughs) or gaming or something like that. I would love to see some sort of, um, Yes, I'd love to hear as it plays out how it how the enemy within is going for you. I guess uh, I I suspect you have a lot of good things, to, cool, useful things to say about the experience. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I have nearly three thousand words of a review of the
1: Cubicle Seven edition of the product <laughs> open on <That's>... my computer <laughs> that I owe you at some point. That's right, yes. and we will get there. <laughs> That's fantastic. If you're up for for something of that length, Then, yeah, I I've been trying to post and. This year, I also plan on finally getting a blog, so I will post these things publicly when I can, but I've also, as part of Dungeon 23, at least been posting my updates, and I will post uh, finished preparatory material when it arrives. So I'm done with the character sheet now, and uh, uh, that may seem like a weird place to start, but I I have my reasons.
0: um, Oh, no, not at all. I will post the, the rules system that I'm using next. I think yeah uh, is it uh, is it set in that warhammer world more or less as presented you know by Cubicle kind setting? of i wanted to feel a little
1: more real because i i really do believe in the premise start with earth hmm. that robin laws and kenneth Height talk about a lot so i i i'm gonna run a, a bit of it through a sort of earthy or seventh ce sort of lens the Warhammer fantasy world is very much a like Tolkien plus, right? It's it because of the sort of intellectual property that it is and supports and how long it's been there. And they have all these other games and product lines and tie-ins that it has to be like an omni fantasy experience uh, from their corporate perspective. Whereas I want to, I want to kind of try and tone some of that down a little bit to yeah. focus in on some of the themes that uh that are important to me there that make the story interesting to me
0: you mentioned uh drawing inspiration from two sources that are quite different in tone you have the warhammer universe which the fantasy universe which generally speaking pcs are uh nobody's. you know it's a grimy mm-hmm. w- trudging around in the muck Fighting giant rats, sort of uh, world, <laughs> T- trying desperately not to die while fighting <laughs> <Right>. a rat, <laughs> exactly. Yes. And that you mentioned seventh C, which is a of my understanding of seventh C is it's much more, I guess, it, empowered and swashbuckly feel. I'm curious, yes. are you taking the enemy within in a more swashbuckly? direction or are you drawing other things from the hmm. system?
1: I'm hoping to take
0: it in more of a sword
1: and sorcery direction. Okay. So yes, the the player characters will be more powerful than your Red of the Mill first level Warhammer fantasy roleplay characters. Yeah. But also, sword and sorcery characters are a little more fiasco esque, I suppose, sure. than your swashbuckling hero of Seventh Sea. So, I, I want to try and meet a maybe maybe closer to Seventh Sea than than the gritty grit, gritter scene stuff. Yeah. But I, so I think the sword and sorcery tone is um, really what I'm striving for there heroes who are prone to poor impulse control and, and bad decision-making under pressure. Yeah, And we'll see if I can pull that off. But uh, but that's certainly the mechanical
0: focus for me. One of the things I bumped into early on in prepping for Enemy Within is you really need to have players that are going to look for ways to get themselves into trouble. At least that yeah. that's the way to maximize the fun is you have people whose instinct will be Yes. yes, I like I'm I'm going to I'm going to try and steal that or I yes, I am going to you know do try such and such a a you know poorly advised but fun idea. So, <laughs> yeah, the more cautious, and maybe this is a general rule of uh fantasy role playing in general, you know, the more the more cautious and um careful players are, <laughs> the less the less fun they get up to. But, um, yeah. Last question, I have you knowing your interests. Have you considered swords of the serpentine as a uh, rule system?
1: Yes, that
0: ultimately is going to be the core of okay. the of of the
1: rules. Mm-hmm. Um uh, that system does a lot of stuff that's distinct for the game, for its setting, so some of it needs to be changed. Um okay. and I've changed some of that. Um, but one thing that instantly appealed to me about it was that game's handling of sorcery, um, where sorcery was this sort of extremely powerful but fell and uncontrollable and corrupting influence on the world. And I immediately thought to myself, "Gee, that sounds a lot like the ruinous powers in the Warhammer mm. Old World." Um, yeah, I bet that uh, I bet that these. These two things would play really well together, uh, just with some slight reskinning around around yeah. things, and I I think they do. I'm quite excited about about that, and I'm also excited about that the way that system takes the careful investigativeness, careful cautious precise investigativeness of uh, from a trail of Cthulhu sort of environment and gives the players lots of ways to just spend points to cause big
0: cool perhaps inadvisable things to happen (laughs) yes well i wish you the best of luck in prepping for that and i hope that we'll get some periodic uh, reports or updates i will try my best as for uh, my 2023 gming plans i've been trying to keep it um, more realistic i guess i'm i'm prone to getting excited about really epic project ideas that that are too ambitious for me to actually pull off so Mm -hmm. i if i got if i had a regular uh call of cthulhu game running for at least the next couple of months with my wife and teenager i'd be super happy about that (laughs) and i've got a i had a really fun time running the alien rpg it was just a a three session not a one shot you know but a very a mini camp very mini mini campaign Nice. And I got good vibes from the players there. So I have pitched something else of kind of a similarly similarly limited scope. So something we could play and know that after, you know, I don't know, a month or two months, we would have reached some sort of uh, a satisfying end point to the story. Um, nice. It, it, so I think if I could get something like that uh, done in like maybe the first quarter of 2023, I would be feeling pretty happy and yeah, so I guess we'll see. I've I pitched a number of games. Haven't heard back if there's a clear preference. Uh, gotcha. You know, I have I have one or two. I'm maybe uh, most itching to run. I I would love to run a lot of things, but I would love to get some Fate of Cthulhu uh, in. Okay. Just because I have had bad luck in getting that to the table, and I, I really want to. Gotcha. A spin. But um. Yeah, I we'll just see. gave my Fate of Cthulhu core book
1: to uh, Chris Salzman.
0: So. Okay a uh, just the other day a number of kind of former guests people in the role for topic community we had a video chat just to hang out for a bit and it came up that uh, fate is one of those systems that is in our little community is very widely admired and is on paper what many of us everything that many of us want out of a game Mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of successful fate games that have been run in our community (laughs) so there's a yeah there's a some kind of a disconnect and i I don't think the fault is is with fate itself. I and I don't and these Probably are not. experienced GMs, so I don't really think the fault is there. But there is just, I I hear that about fate more than I do about other systems. Um, maybe it's something like that that Apocalypse World experience you you were describing, where yeah, something needs to come along that that makes it click for you. Yeah, absolutely. I
1: first found out about fate. There's there's a game that uses it called Spirit of the Century. Yeah, I've heard of it, which is which is uh, sort of pulp role playing. Yeah, and when I was getting back into role playing games and prepping Mass of which was the first thing I did after college, I actually thought about using Spirit of the Century because huh? I knew I wanted a pulp feel to it. Yeah, um, and I only later uh, found uh, Trail of Cthulhu. Okay, so yeah, again. It was one of those things where I was looking at the two systems side by side. And I was like, uh, and "I just I got what Gumshoe was trying to do, yeah, on a more That's intuitive good. level." And um, for whatever reason, it sounds like this is not uncommon.
0: I I have failed to revisit fate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've been uh, we've been chatting on for a while now, so I think it's time to wrap up. But I sure. want to say first just wish you the best uh 2023 thanks. in your gming may I, I hope that that enemy within takes off and is a wild success for you thanks and uh i want to thank you for stepping up to be sort of co-host slash guest here in chris's absence absence not his absinthe uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in the absinthe of, of chris Salzman <laughs> And so with that, I think I'm going to wrap this up and wish all of our uh, beloved listeners uh, a wonderful new year and happy GMing uh, over the next 12 months. So this has been Roll for Topic. We're part of the Roll for It podcasting network, which includes our sister podcast, The Splat Book. The Splat Book is hosted by the aforementioned Kyle Latino and John Corey, two wonderful, lovely people that have uh, been on uh, our show here more than once. And you should definitely go check them out at thesplatbook dot com, I believe. And with that, I have been Andy Rao. And I've been Matt Wilson. And remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM.